If you'd like to open your Bibles to Second Peter, we'll be studying from Second Peter chapter one in a few moments. But first, let us go to our Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come in prayer to You this evening, I wish to lift up again what Conrad has has asked of You. That You be with our leaders. That You bless our shepherds as they work with this congregation. And Father, we, we pray that Your people here will be a healthy people group of of Your servants. Lord, help us to live and to move forward as Your people in fulfilling Your will and all that You have for our lives. Father, we're grateful for Your Word. And we're grateful for the promises that You've given us. Help us to allow our hearts to fully rest and depend on the Word that You have given us so that we can live with confidence knowing what is true. Father, again this evening we we ask as we look at Your Word that we might have eyes that see and ears that hear. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. I think most people are intrigued by final words. You know, in contrast to what a lot of people might say, just happen to say, perhaps we could even summarize it as an unimpressive stream of trivial ideas. When we start talking about final words, a person's last words, we expect a a special quality. We anticipate deeper insight into who they are and what they understand and what they deem important. If these are going to be my last words, what is worthy of saying? If you knew that you had one more block of communication, a final message that you could give, What would be worthy? What would you include? What would be the emphasis that you would like to leave with those who would be left behind? It's because I think that final words have a special intrigue to them that Perhaps this letter of Second Peter possesses an additional degree of fascination for us. For here is a letter from an apostle who expected to die soon. It seems reasonable when we read what he wrote that there is no anticipation that he's going to write any further message to assist the church in how to face the future. The, the indication seems to be that this is going to be the end. His last message. 
So listen to Peter as he clearly explains his purpose for writing this letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, I intend to remind you constantly of these things, even though you know them and are well established in the truth that you now have. Peter's message is, I'm not giving you something new, but I'm going to remind you of things that you already know. Indeed, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I consider it right to stir you up by way of a reminder, since I know that my tabernacle will soon be removed. Because our Lord Jesus Christ revealed this to me. This tabernacle, this body that He has, He knows the time is at hand. It's close. Jesus has revealed He doesn't have much longer to live. And so he continues, Indeed, I will also make every effort that after my departure you have a testimony of these things. I'm writing these things down for you because I want you to have them as you move forward and face the future. What did God lead Peter to write down for the churches to help them face that future that was coming? What message would would need extra emphasis as the years would roll on and forward. How would Peter prepare Christians for that road ahead? Peter provides us one aspect of this preparation that he's giving the Christians in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. He explains to them, For we did not follow cleverly concocted fables, when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of His grandeur. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to Him by the majestic glory. This is my dear Son in whom I am delighted. When this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. You do well if you pay attention to this, as you would to a light shining in a murky place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You know, this story will probably date me, but many of us ought to be familiar with it, in which case it also dates you. (laughs) When I was uh, a youth... There, were, there was this insurance company that incessantly filled the airwaves with the slogan, Own a Piece of the Rock. And the rock that they were speaking about was the Rock of Gibraltar. As I understand it, if you purchased a policy, which my dad did, then you would receive this keychain that contained 
a medallion of clear plastic, and encased within it was this tiny, nearly microscopic sliver of a stone. And I held that piece of plastic in my hand, and I looked at it, that tiny piece of rock, a piece of the rock of Gibraltar. Why this slogan? Why spend so much money inviting people to own a piece of the rock? The answer lies in the permanence and the stability of the rock of Gibraltar. You see, wars have come and gone. Countries have come and gone. But that massive monolith remains. It's a symbol of, of permanence, of stability, of foundation. And the insurance company wanted to tap into that symbol to claim that we will be here for you when you need us. No matter what happens, we're going to be here. We're going to remain and we'll help you. To prepare God's people to face the future after He's gone, Peter wanted Christians to know that they had a solid, reliable, unchanging, permanent foundation that they could count on to carry them into the future. And the text that we've just read, he points to the message about Jesus Christ is reliable. It's like the rock of Gibraltar. You can count on it. The story about Jesus is true. You can build on it. You know, if, if we're going to be disciples, this is a subject that we need to have certainty about. No, if we're going to live as disciples, we need to know whether we can responsibly spend our lives trusting in the story about Jesus Christ of Nazareth and trusting in what He taught. Because after all, Jesus Himself taught that no man can serve two masters. We can't have two sources of security. We can't have two sources of security, two masters telling us, this is how you make decisions. You know, and before we let go of the seeming security that comes from depending on and living for the things that we can see in this world, we need to know that where we're going to grasp, the other master is capable of coming through with all of the promises. If we're going to live as disciples, we need to know that the foundation is there. It's reliable. In other words, at the end of the day, can I rely, can I really rely upon casting my lot upon the story about Jesus Christ? Peter wants that second and third generation of Christians to know. We did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has two concerns. There's two 
key ideas that he wants to nail down, that he wants to guarantee that those Christians who are going to be going on after he's gone, that they've got two things very clear in their minds. And the first one is he wants them to know that the power of the Lord he told them about is true. The power of the Lord. What did he do? He, he opened the eyes of the blind. He, he spoke to the winds and the waves and they went calm. He spoke the word and the dead came forth. After he was raised, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Peter says, I want you to know that the power of the Lord is true. It's reliable. The other concern that Peter had, he, I want you to know that the return of the Lord is true. You can count on it. Well, what's the story? The story is that one day Jesus will come back on the clouds with power. And that he has the authority to separate between sheep and goats. And he'll turn to the, to the sheep and will say, well done, good and faithful servants. He'll come in here and here's the reward and the inheritance that's been prepared for you. And he turns to the goats and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Go away into condemnation. And that this is the future of the world. If everything said about the power and the return of the Lord is in fact true, and it is reliable, then Christians have a rock of Gibraltar on how they need to live. And that rock of Gibraltar says that we need to center our lives around Christ and, we need to li and living for Him needs to become paramount. It needs to be more important than, than all the glitter and all the other distractions. Because that is the future of the world. And we're going to be a part of it. And Peter wanted the, sec the second generation and third generation Christians to know that what they had heard about the power of the Lord was absolutely true. So, how do you teach that the story about, of his power was true. How do you go about communicating that, Peter? Peter writes, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And Peter then begins to recount the story of what we call the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is on the mountain. Peter, James, and John are there. And then God speaks from the cloud. And God gives Jesus honor and glory on the mountain. And Peter says, we heard God's voice when he said to Jesus, this is my dear son in whom I am delighted. You know, commentators speculate, why pick this, Peter? Why not talk about opening the eyes of the blind? Why not talk about some great miracle he did? Some demonstration of great power? Why go to that story, Peter? I don't know 
because I'm not in Peter's head. But Peter was living in the first century. And we already know the sorts of things that were being said about the power of the Lord in the first century. Yes, he does powerful things, but it's by the power of Beelzebub that he's doing it. There can be no mistake about where the power of the Lord is coming from. And so he tells a story where God himself says, this is my dear son. Listen to him. And there can be no doubt about where the power of the Lord is coming from. Well, how do you convince people that the story of Jesus' return is a reliable story, Peter? I mean, we can't say we're eyewitnesses of that. It hasn't happened yet. How do we know that is going to happen? I mean, can that be as solid a foundation, a rock of Gibraltar, as, as the first thing? The power of the Lord? How can we be certain that this is true? Peter points to the fact that the message from God's Word is reliable. He says you can know it because the message from God's Word is reliable. Moreover, we possess the prophetic Word as an altogether reliable thing. You do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The prophet was not the source of the message. The prophet's not giving his interpretation of the message that God gave him. He's not giving his perspective of what he thinks God is trying to communicate to people. The prophet is not sharing what he thinks is a good idea and what people need to know. Peter says, no, rather the Holy Spirit guided the prophets to speak for God. And so what you have in God's Word, what the prophets gave us, is in fact God's message to us. And so when we read about Jesus' return and we read about the end of the world, we hear God telling us ahead of time what is going to happen. And so the bottom line is, when it comes to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Christians have a solid rock of Gibraltar. Not only do they have eyewitnesses of it, the incredible power that Jesus demonstrated, but also the Word of God is reliable. It's a rock. And it tells us about Christ and what is coming. It is God's message to us. It does not reflect what human opinions might be, but it tells us about the Lord who's returning and what that will be like. Have you ever gone someplace for the first time and it was dark? Some place you've never been before. Maybe going into a forest that you've never been to before, but it, it's dark in the forest. Or maybe into a cave and you're kind of exploring. Maybe you're crawling underneath a house. 
and it's dark. And, and if you're going somewhere that you've never been before, you want security. You, you want to be able to navigate this, to understand where you need to go. And security comes in the form of a flashlight. You turn that on, and you can see, and then you can navigate where you need to go. Well, these second generation Christians were pushing forward into a murky future. And they needed to know what could reliably lead and guide them. And in this text, Peter reminds them, Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. You do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light shining in a murky place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. You know, as long as it's dark, you need that light. You need God's word to be showing you the way, to be teaching you, to guide you. But once the day comes... Once the end comes, once the morning star comes so you can navigate, everything is fine. But until then, until you've come to the end, you need that reliable Word of God to take you forward. It's a rock. It's going to be there. It's permanent. It's unchanging. You can count and rely on it for living your life as you go forward. So if prophecy is reliable, what can the Christian expect? I've summarized it previously, but, but here's how Peter gets into the future within this letter. Because he wants Christians to understand what's coming. Later in this letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. When it comes, the heavens will disappear with a horrific noise, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. And the earth and every deed on it will be laid bare. You know, if the message about Jesus is as reliable as the rock of Gibraltar, if this is the future that's coming, then there is a very natural and very practical question that arises. How do we live? In view of that being the future, what do I need to do now? And that's exactly where Peter goes. Since all these things are to melt away in this manner, what sort of people must we be conducting our lives in holiness and godliness while waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? And the answer is, since you are waiting for these things, strive to be found at peace without spot or blemish when you come into His presence. You see, because of the future that is coming, there is a way to live now. And Peter wants to help these second gen, third generation Christians as they press on into the future to know what they can rely upon and to know how they need to live in their present. Because the future is coming. What was Peter guided in writing to us? Well, we Christians have a solid foundation for living for God. Not only is the message about Christ, His glory and return, reliable, but God's Word is also dependable. But Peter has another message that he wants us and, and those Christians to know. As he's talking about what's reliable, he says, 
not every source of light, not everything that's going to shine away a path is like that rock of Gibraltar. There are some sources of light that are not reliable. This brings us to another major section in Second Peter. Peter will spill a lot of ink on this topic. And it is the messenger may not be reliable. He spends the whole chapter talking about how the messenger may not be reliable and the condemnation that is coming to these unreliable messengers. This is sad. It's disturbing. We're quite familiar with Jesus' warnings about wolves in sheep's clothing. A well-known preacher once raised a very disturbing question along these lines. Does the wolf know he's a wolf? That's a good question. As Peter writes about the dangers of false teachers, he writes these words. But false prophets rose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. These false teachers will infiltrate your midst with destructive heresies, even to the point of denying the Master who brought them. As a result, they will bring swift destruction on themselves, and many will follow their debauched lifestyles. Because of these false teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. And in their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not sitting idly by. Their destruction is not asleep. That phrase, in their greed they will exploit you with deceptive words. I can't help but just reflect on, on some of the things I, I've heard over the years and when I was in Brazil. Just bring more money to the church. And God is going to pour out and so give you all of your dreams. And the poor people who could hardly afford to live were being encouraged to go way above what God was asking for them. And the preachers were driving around and living in very nice quarters. But does the wolf know he's a wolf? It does seem simplistic to assume that every wolf knows that he's a wolf and is deliberately desiring to serve evil and destroy God's people. Peter is going to describe in 2 Peter chapter 2 a particular type of wolf and the condemnation that needs to come and that is going to come on, on those wolves. But when I think about this question about, about who's a false teacher, there's another text that comes to mind. And I cannot help but recall Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is, is here going to be talking about building a building. And he describes the one who's teaching and his ministry as one who 
is going to, to lay a foundation and then begin to construct this building. And, and so the teaching is, is represented in, in the building that is constructed. And he describes it this one, this way. Each one must be careful how he builds. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen. For the day will make it clear because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what kind of work each has done. And what Peter, but what Paul then goes on to say is basically there's three possible results. He infers, one, that if someone builds with gold and, and silver and precious stones, and, and the, the quality of, of what is constructed is of value, then the inference is that the person here is, well done, good and faithful servant, come in. But he goes on to describe another situation where the work, what is done, what is constructed, it burns up. It was wood. It was straw. It was, it was hay. It, it, didn't, it wouldn't have great value to it. And then what Paul says is that one will be saved, but like one just kind of skipping through the fire. There wasn't quality to what was done. And then he describes a third possible judgment. The wolf. If someone teaches and builds something that destroys God's people, destroys the temple of God, God's Spirit lives in His people, Paul says, then God is going to destroy that person. They, they, the wolf may have destroyed God's people, but God is also going to destroy the wolf. Paul's purpose in writing was not to warn against false teachers. That's not his purpose in 1 Corinthians 3. His purpose was to get the Corinthians to stop evaluating one teacher over another. He wanted them to focus on God. He didn't want them to focus and have preacheritis. And not to put a man where he doesn't belong. But to look at God and what is the message. But Peter's point in his letter is that the messenger may not be reliable. And that fits well with what Paul wrote about how God judges the work and the construction that goes up. To summarize a portion of, of Peter's second letter, he knew that his death was approaching. He, at this point, is probably already in Rome. Perhaps Nero has already begun to persecute Christians. The Lord has revealed to him that his time on this earth is short. And so he writes a letter to Christians to help prepare them to go forward. And he presents an intense message, the final message from this apostle, to equip Christians to prepare them for the future. He desperately wants them to know how to live. And he opens this letter describing in practical terms what they need to be doing. Make every effort to add to your faith excellence, to excellence knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly affection, to brotherly affection 
unselfish love. He hardly gathers another breath before he writes, make every effort to make sure of your calling and election. Again, he hardly takes another breath before he writes, strive to be at peace without spot or blemish when you come into his presence. Christians, here's how to live. Well, why is this so important? Because the message about Jesus Christ, the message about his power and his return is true. It's like the rock of Gibraltar. It's going to go through time and it's going to happen. The prophecies of Scripture are true. Christian, you can count on these things happening. And therefore, how you choose to live makes a difference. So add to faith, excellence, and so forth. And then, as Peter's talking about what is reliable and how they should live, he suddenly goes, oh, by the way, there is something that's not necessarily reliable. And that's the messenger. He, he reminds us that not every messenger is reliable. The main thread of, of Peter's final words can be summed up in the close of this letter of Second Peter. Let's listen to him together. Therefore, because of all that I've written, because these things are true, therefore, dear friends, since you are waiting for these things, strive to be found at peace without spot or blemish when you come into His presence and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Therefore, Dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard that you do not get led astray by the air of these unprincipled men and fall from the firm grasp on the truth, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him, be the honor both now and on that eternal day. Amen. Our Lord is returning. It might be this evening someone is not yet ready to encounter Him. The story of Christ returning, the story of His power, is like the Rock of Gibraltar. It's there. And it's reliable. So we need to be ready. And if you're not ready this evening, God has done everything He can. He has made your salvation possible. He's made it possible for you to be taken and to be made holy because His power is what makes you holy. His Son dying on the cross is, is what makes all of this possible. And, and if you'll rely on the One who died for you, the one who was raised up again, then He claims you as His own. And He forgives you. And He brings you together into a community that He is building. And the message about 
how God wants us to rely on His Son. He wants us to acknowledge that it's true that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, that He died for our sins. He, he wants us to rely on Him and express our faith and our trust in Christ by being buried with Christ, dying to an old life and being raised up into a new life that His power made possible. His grace makes possible. If you've not yet given your life to Christ, you can come this evening while we stand and sing. Wonderful story of love.